is Bobby Skimbrey this morning is going to be preaching on Matthew 5, 43 through 48. That is on page 811 of the Bibles in front of you. Again, it's Matthew 5, 43 through 48. If you all could stand, I will read the passage and then we will pray for Bobby. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Bobby, if you want to come up, we will pray for you. God, we thank you so much for Bobby. We thank you for his preparation. God, we thank you for his heart and his love of your word. God, we pray that our hearts, um, on a passage that we may find ourselves getting angry or frustrated with. God, I pray that you keep us humble as Bobby brings your word. We thank you for him and his family, for the love that they have for you, Jesus, and for the love that Bobby has of sharing your word. Give him much joy as he shares with us this morning. In your son's name, amen.
like do that. They fed them and they like over tears thanked them for how they like helped um, serve their family. Kind of unusual for people to do that to paramedics. Um, and then they asked for the contact information for the two boys who were responsible for the death of their son. Um, they said, hey, we're just really worried about them and we want to um, we want to talk to them. And so my sister helped arrange them communicating and they invited these boys over for dinner. And they expressed to the boys um, that they loved them and that they forgive them entirely and that they understood that God in his divine will for some reason wanted and was ready for their son to go be with them now and that they were not mad at them and they wanted them to know the love that Jesus has shown to them. They wanted to express their forgiveness. Um, and this is a true story. And no doubt those boys encountered Jesus that night. You know, my sister, she shared with me that she had attempted to, you know, she hoped to witness to her coworkers for years, hoped to be a good, you know, a good witness for Jesus to them, be a nice person, you know, maybe share a little bit about going to church with them, hoped to be a light in her department. But nothing she said for years with these other paramedics had a fraction of the impact that those Amish parents had on those people. What those, the way those parents loved opened doors to communicate about Jesus with their paramedics, and they were just floored by it. It challenged my sister's presuppositions about what would truly win the world. Because it wasn't her good deeds, necessarily, or her words, or being a good tr Christian, or having the right initial strategy. No, it was odd, reckless, unexpected love. It was the Amish who were successful in opening the hearts of her co-workers to see something about Jesus they didn't see before. You see, her co-workers saw through that family something of a glimmer of God's love. This is what we're called to today. It's an extraordinary love. It's an unusual love. It's an impossible love. But it is the love of our Father. So, as we look at this text, I have five sections or chapters that I'm going to talk about. Um, first, we're going to look at the problem that the Israelites face and the problem that we face today. Second, we're going to look at what exactly Jesus is commanding of his followers. Like, what does he mean? Here he says to love our enemies. Then we're going to look at why Jesus tells us these commands, why he gives us these. We're going to look at how to actually obey them. That's an important question. And then lastly, we're going to discuss the impact of his commands. So the problem, the command, the why, the how, the impact. That's, that's how we're going to go about this. So let's start with the problem. So today's... Um, section that we're in concludes the last of these, what is sometimes called the antitheses, but the, these series of statements where Jesus says, you've heard that it is said this, but I say to you something else. These questions all challenge the Pharisees' teachings and misunderstandings of the Old Testament, and ultimately he's providing a deeper, more clear picture of how the Old Testament works and how it points to Jesus. In today's case, what we see is Jesus challenging Pharisees who would go around teaching that we should love our friends and our family, of course, uh, but we should hate our enemies. 
Uh, in fact, they, they're, they're actually twisting scripture to say that God commands us to hate our enemies. Uh, and in the scriptures, don't do that, actually. Um, here's what it says in verse 43. You've heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the problem. It's likely that the Pharisees are justifying to themselves that this was a faithful interpretation of the Old Testament, of the Law and the Prophets. Now, no doubt, God's judgment of the wicked and his hatred of evil is a central theme in the Old Testament. But Jesus here is correcting this way of thinking because ultimately it's unbalanced. And it misses the main themes or the main thrust of what all of Scripture is about. In fact, it misses the very heart of God. So what are the realities about the character of God that it misses? Well, first, it ignores the fact, this idea that we should love our neighbor and hate our enemy. It ignores the fact that God himself desires that all people everywhere should repent and be saved. I won't read them all, but just to, you know, if you want to look these up. In 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9 and Ezekiel 18, um, say all of it, basically the same thing. That God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. And secondly, it misses out on the fact that God shows mercy and grace to everybody, to even his enemies. That's essentially what Jesus says in verse 45. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So what he's saying is that God loves, to some degree, everybody, in the sense that he is restraining his wrath against those who are committing evil deeds, allowing them opportunity to repent of their sin. He's showing immense compassion to Israel as they fail again and again, he continues to open his arms. But furthermore, practically speaking, I think we can understand this and should understand this practically, he is like taking care of the world. Literally, it rains, and it's not just like you don't get rain because you're not a follower of Christ. I mean, everybody has access to the food and the abundance of the earth, the abundance of God, those who don't have it, are a result of people hoarding and withholding the gifts that God has given to the earth. God has shown his grace to the earth. But also, it's just this fact that the Bible is not ashamed about that God loves the world. He loves the world. He loves humanity. It is the heartbeat of God in Scripture. It is his love for humanity. You see, Jesus is saying... You Pharisees are picking and choosing the doctrines that fit your purposes so that you can live how you want to live and yet still boast that you're fulfilling the law of Moses. That's really what this whole section that we've been looking at for the last few months is about. Pharisees are twisting God's law so that they can do what, you know, they sort of make the rules so that they can actually reach them or accomplish them with their behavior. And then they can compare themselves to others who don't meet up and look down on those people who are not as good as them. And you know, this is exactly what we do, all of us. We subconsciously find these mischievous ways to deceive our hearts into thinking, I am somewhat of a good person, I don't hate anybody, or I'm not like that person. 
But listen, the command here and the commands that Jesus has been giving for verses is not to just like, don't do this bad thing. He's saying, no, in your heart, like that matters as much as anything. It's not just, you know, don't hate your brother. It's if you've hated your brother in your heart, you've murdered your brother. And he doesn't just say, well, don't hate anybody. But he gives us a positive command to love our enemies. Now, for us, I would probably guess, most of you, if I were to ask you, who do you hate, would probably tell me, well, I don't hate anyone. I've heard some of you say those exact words. In fact, I think I would say that. If you were to say, you hate anyone. But even in saying it, there's something in me that's like,
I need you to, to see how crazy this command is. Why? It's unnatural. And we live in a time which is massively divided. And look, he, he's not saying don't have enemies, is he? He's not saying, hey, avoid enemies altogether. There are some people, and there are different groups of oppressed people that have very real enemies. And, and he's not saying don't fight against those enemies. Don't fight for justice. Don't, uh, don't try to deal with oppression and evil. But he's not saying don't, but he's saying love them. This is scandalous. Now, I do want to give just a quick pastoral note, just in case your brain is going somewhere that I think is unhelpful. He's not saying to love everybody in the same way. Okay? The way that I love my wife is not the way that I'm going to love other people, obviously. But also, if you have been physically assaulted or abused, Christ is not commanding you here to continue to love a romantic partner in that way, necessarily. In fact, get away. Get a restraining order. Pursue legal action. Those are not the opposite of love. In fact, through these actions, we can still show love. But he is saying to still love. And that is so, so hard. And so, yes, let's call out wickedness. Let's prosecute abusers. But in that, let's pray for restoration. Let's pray for healing. Here's why this is scandalous, people. Many, many evil, murderous men and women in prison right now are saints of God. And they will be in heaven with you. They will be your brothers and sisters. They are your brothers and sisters. God loves evil men and women. You cannot read the Bible and come to any other conclusion. You just can't. Now you might be thinking, that's a good Christian. I get this. I know exactly what you're saying. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Christians love that phrase. And, 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 and I will say, in reality, I think that phrase is exactly right. However, the problem is we say these platitudes and fail to live up to their standards. You see, we are so much better at hating the sin than loving the sinner, aren't we? See, I think what we usually mean by that is love the sinner, meaning those people, and hate the sin, meaning those sins. But you fail to recognize that you're the sinner, that you're the same. You see, the problem with that phrase is we fail to hate our own sin more than the sin of those that we look down upon or that make us feel uncomfortable. So maybe we should like modify that phrase to, you know, love everyone, hate all sin, but your own the most. I feel like that would maybe just keep us a little, you know, on a better path. You know, I think many of us have a difficult time loving people who go to a different church, or who practice a different faith, or maybe people who left us, or left our church, or, or who wronged us, or who wronged you. Surely those people are included in the commands of love, right? So what is our problem? The problem is we're just like the Pharisees. We think we're doing so well in the love department, and we end up filling ourselves with these sort of self-justifications 
for how we can be dismissive of people or rude or just sort of like forget about the people that we don't care about or we can judge people. And I just want to say, like, personally, I am not at all exempt from this sin. I, I'm receiving the hard words as I'm saying them. And just to be honest, like, if, if we can sort of talk real for a second, ever since, like, the 2015-2016 Trump election, it seems like the temperature got turned up, and within the church, it's just more difficult to, like, have these conversations and love one another. And if I'm being honest, like, that's been really hard for me to, like, disagree with people on some of these issues. It's been hard for me to love, and I know it has for all of you, because I've had really hard conversations with some of you. And listen, I'm not saying that let's not get, like, we need to stop having the hard conversations. I'm saying that I want to love you, and I want us to love one another, and in doing so, wrestle together. This is tough. But I do want to just take a little more time to examine like what the commands mean. Like what does it mean to actually love? What does it mean to love your enemies? Verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So it really gives us two commands, right? Love and pray. I, I won't labor on this because I think it's sort of obvious. But when we, when we think about how the Bible describes love, there's sort of two great examples that sort of come forth. First and most obviously is the crucifixion. Right? And the second would be the story of the Good Samaritan. It's this picture of what love for your enemy looks like, right? The Samaritans were natural enemies of the Israelites. And what does the Samaritan do? He provides physical relief. He provides, with his hands and feet, love. He provides food. The idea is that love is not merely or only a feeling, but an action. It's caring. And you know, we all know this instinctively. We just don't like it. You can't say you love your grandma and never call her. Ever. It's like, okay, well, you know, call her once. Right? It requires something to say, yeah, I love this person. Like, some action. I can't say I love my, kin, my kids, but then just let them fend for themselves when it comes to food. I just can't do it. It's not, it doesn't make sense. There's action tied to... What love is, it's always been that way. Now, I'm not saying you just need to start sending freezer meals to your enemies, but, you know, maybe that's a good place to start. The reality is I can't give you specifics about what, what love looks like in circumstances because love, by definition, requires effort and creativity. I don't know how to, like, love somebody in your situation. I'm trying to figure out how to love people in my situation. And it's difficult. That's the point. It takes effort, caring. It takes doing. But let this be a test for your own heart. If you do not do anything for those you say you love, that can be a test for you. And then if you need help, say, okay, I need help in this situation knowing how to love somebody. Work that out in community. Work that out with trusted friends. Work that out um, with thoughtful time and, and time in prayer. Which leads us to our second point, which is to pray. This is really not a different point, but an extension of the idea to love your enemies, right? To love someone, you pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. When you love people, and you know God, the one who can help them, it only 
it makes sense that we would intercede on their behalf to go to God and say, help this person. God, help this person in their situation. Bring relief. And, and let me just say, so many people have noted this. This is not an original thought at all. But it's really hard to hate somebody that you pray for regularly. You want to melt away the hardness of bitterness that so easily takes root against people that have wronged you? Pray for them daily. The Spirit will not allow that bitterness to stay as you pray for people. It's just not how it works. Because when you're communing with God, you remember He loves them too. More than you. More than you ever could. That's powerful. It also, prayer like this acknowledges that God may very well intend to save those you just saved. He may very well intend to save those who've harmed you. He intends to save people you know from every nation, from every faith, from every ideological persuasion. So however you, you face persecution, pray. And I, I do want to say, for those... For those like, like who are genuinely experiencing persecution, for missionaries, for those who are sharing the gospel in difficult places, this is the call to you also. For those who are considering the call to missions, it is a call to love and to die. Because in doing so, like the Amish family, you are showing the love of Christ in a tangible way. And that is the powerful message of the gospel. It's not just words, it is actual love. So that's, I just wanted to mention sort of there's action associated with this love. But now I want to look into the why. Why did he tell us to do this specifically? Well, verse 45 makes it plain. It says, so that we will be come, so that we will be sons of your father who is in heaven. Well, what does that mean? Now, I think it's important to know that Jesus isn't preaching a gospel where if you love like this, then you get to become a son or a daughter. You become a son. That's the, that's the path to sonship or daughterhood. It's not what he's saying. That contradicts like, all of Scripture. What he's teaching us is that this is how we must love if we want to act like our dad. What he's teaching us is that this is what our father's like. And this is what we must be like if we're his children. You see, like all the preceding sections of this text, he's calling us to a deeper, more heartfelt expression of our faith. One that requires, this is key here, an expression of faith that requires a new heart. One that requires us to be made into the image of God so that we can image God in our behavior. You see, the Pharisees could not reach the standard because they heart, their hearts were dead. They needed a new heart to become like their father, and that's what Jesus is calling us to. So, how is our father like this? And this is, we've already talked about this a little bit, but in what way is our father sort of like this? Here's what it says, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Um, this is often referred to as common grace by theologians. 
Again, it simply means that there is a degree of love and grace that is extended to all humanity. If God cares for the good and the evil alike, so must we. That's the idea. And if you don't, you're not acting like your father. He goes on to say, if you don't do that, you're just acting like everybody else. Nothing sets you apart. Here's what it says in verse 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? What he's saying is the people that you Israelites consider your enemies, the bad guys, the tax collectors, and the Gentiles, they're doing the very same thing you're commanding. They love their neighbors because, like most people, just like our... We love people. You love your family. Even, like, really nasty people love, like, probably their kids a little bit. <laughs> Essentially what he's saying is, look, the standard that the Pharisees have set... Actually, anybody can reach that. It's not very high. It's achievable by anyone. It doesn't make you special. Because it doesn't require the Holy Spirit to transform you to, to do it. And he says there's no rewards. We're getting ready to start another section of passages that talk about rewards. Uh, and so I'm not going to get into that, but that's, we're going to look at that for many weeks now. But the question for us is, like, are we lowering our standards? Just like the Pharisees do. And think, well, I haven't hurt anyone. I haven't, I'm nice to everyone. Well, that's great. But the standard is to love your enemies. The question before us here in verse 47 is this. What more are we doing? What more are you doing? That's a hard question. Isn't it? What more are you doing than others? Listen. If you're non-Christian... Neighbors and coworkers love better than you, then maybe you're the non-Christian. Or perhaps today God is calling you to repentance and to live out this faith in a deeper, truer way. To see the God of the Bible for who he really is and let that change your life. Because all these things that we're talking about, this difficult love, it is how God is. It's how he acted. So perhaps you don't know him. Perhaps you don't really know what he's done for you. Because that is the thing that changes our lives. So how do we obey these commands? Like how do we actually do this impossible thing that he's saying? Well, first I just want to clarify the commands get a little more difficult. We're not done. Verse 48, what does it say? You must, therefore, be perfect, like your Heavenly Father is perfect. Cool, 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 perfect. Uh, like, just add that to the list of difficult things to do here. You see, that last sentence there, it actually wraps up the entirety of the section we've been looking at. This sort of summary of like how we're to act is to be perfect, like God. And I, and I think that it's a fitting end to our instruction today. Um, but like, if, when you hear that, most people that hear that, that sentence sounds oppressive, I assume. It. That's the way that I read it at first. Um, because you, you have to think, you tell me to love my enemies, 
and then tell me to be perfect like God, that is impossible. Right? Like, if you're not thinking that, I don't, you're not thinking. It is impossible to be perfect. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It is impossible to be perfect. At least on our own. And, and I think that it is so important that we get here and we feel the weight of this. Okay? The command of the law, the character of God, the standard of God is unreachable by you and by me or by anybody, and certainly by the Pharisees. Unreachable. Impossible. You see, Jesus is exposing the foolishness of thought that would make us think that we could come up with a list of rules or, and, and follow them and then therefore please God. You see, the standard to which God calls us is a standard that only He keeps perfectly. Okay, so, what do we do with that? Here's the key. The key to obeying God, to obeying His commands, is God Himself. Let me break this down. First off, we need to clarify what does Jesus mean by perfect? Because I think that our, the way modern ears hear that is wrong, or at least not how it's used in the Greek. You see, the, the emphasis of perfection is not about a lack of mistakes or flawless execution. It's more of a perfection of beauty, of character, of balance. It's less like looking at a quiz where somebody got 100% saying, you did perfect, and more like looking at a painting from a master artist and saying, perfect, beautiful. See, elsewhere in the New Testament, the same word is translated as mature or complete or whole. You see, perfection here is not about a flawless achieving or carrying out of God's law. In fact, that's what the Pharisees were trying to do. Jesus is saying, look at who God is, the way he loves. Look at the way that he's just. Look at how he forgives. Look, about, look how he repays wickedness with kindness. Look at how he keeps his word. Look at how God's heart is pure. Look how God is slow to anger and his anger is restrained, but his kindness is quick and lavish. In this sense, you see, it's saying the whole picture of God is perfect. The God revealed in Scripture is perfect. No doubt that also means he's without flaw or mistake. But it's not really the thrust of what this word is about. You see, it's not that God is perfect. It's that he defines perfection itself. It's not that he performs correctly, though he does. It's that he is beauty, his righteousness, all in perfect balance, his justice, his holiness. So then being perfect like God is therefore not about a scorecard. It's not for us to like, Jesus is not saying, aim to make no mistakes. That's not what he's saying, obviously. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, don't mess up once. What he's saying is, here is the destination to put into your GPS. He's saying, this is the model after which you design your painting. 
He's saying this is the bullseye at which you aim your darts. He's saying the goal of your life is to behold the perfection of God. That's the standard, and spend your life aiming for that. Not to be like the culture, or just to, to, to be somebody that would make your mom proud. He's saying, but aim your whole life to know Jesus and to be like him. That is your goal in life. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look at God. You see, when you look at God, you know, it's a reminder to not look at your scorecard. To turn away from that because your salvation never did and never will hang in or hang on to like whether or not you performed well enough. He's saying, look at the thing which is perfection and is the source of your salvation. So what he means when he says look to God or keep your eyes on God is to look and see how he carried out perfection for us through Jesus Christ. Think about what we talked about today, these commands to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. How interesting is it that Jesus here is calling us to something that he would carry out in the most profound, beautiful way in all of Scripture. He lives out this love your enemies to extraordinary lengths. As he would die, and, and as he would be beaten and bruised and tortured, he would pray right then for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he's being crucified. What an example for us is he? What an example of practicing what you preach. And so, we look to Christ. Yes, the example of perfection in this the image of God perfectly, but he did not only do these things as an example for us, he accomplished perfection as a substitute for us. You see, Jesus carries out the commands of the law perfectly because the nature of the law demonstrates something about God's image, and Jesus is the image of God perfectly, and then when he dies and raises from the dead, he accredits his perfection to our account. His perfection is a gift for you. His record of perfection is transferred to your report card. And so, look to Christ, who keeps perfection for us. And in doing so, we'll become more perfect like him. But not only was Jesus perfect on our behalf, his perfection itself compelled him to save us through his obedience. Here's what I mean. Jesus does not tell us just to, you know, hey, love your enemies because that's what I do. He tells us to love our enemies because you're his enemy and he loves you. At least you were. You see, this is the piece of the puzzle that couldn't be understood in the Sermon of the Mount because he had not yet died. But we need to see the end of the story to understand what he's saying perfectly. Paul puts it beautifully in Ephesians 2. It's a long passage. I'm just going to read it all. And see here his love for his enemies. He loves us. Here's what he says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Not a friendly diagnosis. But God being rich in mercy, why? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I can't go into it all, but like that section is the application of what, of what we're talking about today. Like, dive into that, uh, and, and that's like sort of all the answers here. But see that he loved you, he loved me when we were his enemies. When we were children of wrath, it is his perfection of character, his grace, his love for enemies that saves us. It saves the world. And so if we get this, we understand whenever he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's not talking about you and what you need to do. Like, that's hard to get, but when he says, you must be perfect, he's saying, look at perfection, he makes you perfect. That's the gospel. God making us perfect through Christ Jesus. You see, it's all about Jesus. It's all about who he is and what he's done. Jesus is, here's the secret key, he's the point of the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount. It's all about him. It's all about who he is. And whenever Jesus becomes the most significant reality of your life, when Jesus becomes the thing that you gaze upon more than anything else, then we start to understand what it means to be perfect. Then we'll be transformed. Then we can love our enemies. How do we love our enemies? We spend our whole life looking at the one who did it for you. And it just transforms us. It's so hard to look at somebody and hate them because they wronged you. And it's just like, yeah, but I hated God and he made me a son. That's transforming. So what's the impact of this type of gospel belief? It's no less than the transformation of the world. And I'm not exaggerating. This is God's plan to reveal the gospel to the whole earth. It is the love of Christ displayed in and carried out through the love of his people who understood how deeply he loved you and forgave you. And they share that love with the world. This is the church's witness to their beautiful Savior. This is the love that lends credibility to our gospel message. This is the love that softens the hardest of hearts. Perhaps it is so that God has given you enemies so that you have the chance to display his heart to them. Perhaps it will be that most of the people in heaven that you impacted the most on earth will be those that you disliked, or who wronged you. It would be a shame to waste such opportunities when we've been given such 
great love by God. And wouldn't it be just like our Christ, who through his love for his enemies would save you, and then through your love for your enemies, save the world? That's the picture. That's how it works. So you want to change the world? Pray for those who persecute the church. Pray for those you once hated. Pray for those who've wronged you. Love those who don't deserve it. Invite the people who killed your son over for dinner and tell them you love them and forgive them. And so does Jesus. And then the world will see the perfection of Jesus. Pray. God, I ask that as we, as we peer into the gospel, as we sing the songs, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we'd be transformed by it. That we would not just perform another heartless tradition, but that we would remember that your blood was shed for your enemies that you made us sons and daughters. God, I, I pray for those here who, who have never truly been transformed by your love, that they would see how far you would go to prove your love by sending your son to die and raising him from the dead. And that you would change hearts today. God, we confess that we've fallen short and we, continue, we will continue to fall short. But God, but you never did one. You're our perfect standard. You're the one who has lived for us. And so we claim the righteousness of Christ today in his name. Amen. Every week we remember the death of Christ. We remember his sufferings. We remember by taking bread that his body was beaten. And today as we remember his body and his blood poured out, remember that he did that as an act of love for those who are killing them. An act of love, genuine care for those who would pierce his side. That's the kind of Jesus that we come forward to today. So wherever you are, whatever sins, whatever 